I thought that mine has the least interesting title <laughs> among the group, and I wondered how I could spice it up a little bit. And I think I figured out how to do that for this group, which is I'm going to be critiquing C.S. Lewis for perhaps the first time ever <laughs> at the ETS. And that will probably stay in your mind. How, how dare someone, a sun devil of all persons, come up from Phoenix, Arizona and critique Lewis? Well, I'm going to be talking about beauty and holiness. And that fits also into the larger topic of the ETS. And I'm going to do that by thinking first about commercials. And I, I know what you're saying. You're thinking, but Dr. Anderson, commercials aren't beautiful. Now, I'm not considering them for that reason. I'm considering them because I'm thinking about what they represent about a culture. What do a culture's commercials say about the culture and the people who produce these, who have a great amount of money to spend, and they want to get someone to do something, usually buy a product or something. And so they spend money on learning about their audience and what their audience, uh, how they can be manipulated to do things, and they make commercials. And so that means they're excellent as a resource for studying that audience. What will, what will move an audience to action? And usually that means spending money. And since, as you pointed out, it's not beauty. The goal of the commercial per person isn't the most beautiful commercial ever. You, you've seen Geico commercials, presumably, uh, progressive commercials. Um, it isn't beauty. It's other things. In fact, it seems to be nonsense now. The more nonsensical the commercial is, uh, perhaps they'll buy something. And yet, there is an educational philosophy that says if you just put truth, beauty, and goodness in front of a student, they'll see them and value them and choose them. How can both those things be true? This, this, this philosophy says they'll be drawn toward them or moved toward them. So those two propositions are in tension. It can't both be true that beauty isn't all that important for getting us into action, and if we just saw beauty, we'd be moved to action. And it seems like the second one is the incorrect one. They chose poorly. So if that's the case, how do we understand the purpose of beauty? What is beauty? So this paper isn't simply about commercials. It's going to be about the philosopher and the artist, about why putting beauty in front of someone isn't sufficient. And the philosopher and the artist are united around one thing, which is the pursuit of meaning. The philosopher and the artist both want to get at the meaning of the human condition, even if they approach it with different methods. So I'm going to use two artists to illustrate the point that I'll argue for in this paper. One is Keats, and the other is King David. And I, will, I believe they both had access to the same information. They both had access to general revelation, even if Keats had access to more history than David did. So I'm not thinking of David specifically as an author of inspired scripture, but as a poet who wrote about beauty. He may have also been inspired, we believe so, right? But for the purpose of the argument, that is neither here nor there. So before we get to those two, I wanna look at two of my favorite intellectuals that represent this philosophy of education I just mentioned, Lewis and Roger Scruton. As you read them, you can see they come from the same stream of thought, even if Lewis is better known for his Christian apologetics. We know from his work on criticism that Lewis believed art is objective, not to be used for promoting an ideology. And he saw beauty as incarnational and in everyday life. Our nature is such that we find ourselves with desires meant to be met, he said. Our nature, uh, uh, such as hunger and thirst, and the desire for beauty is no different. 
In this way, it is a signpost along the way to beauty in itself. So what I'm going to call that is PPA, the Platonic Perspective of Art. And that's also where the Davenant guys might be shocked from this one. Monsters won't shock you, but if I critique Plato, it will shock you. It'll be all right. It'll be okay. (laughs) So this says that the material world may contain beauty, but it's a limited and changing beauty that points us to the non-material world of forms, beauty in itself. And in that realm, not in this one, our deepest desires are finally met as we leave the material world to go, what Lewis said, go higher up and further in. In his apologetic work found in places like The Abolition of Man, Lewis takes aim at the materialists, really the logical positivists, and their reductionist education. He thinks of them describing the experience of the sublime when seeing a waterfall and reducing it to brain chemistry of the individual. To argue against this view, he uses the term Tao. He says, the conception in all of its forms, Platonic, Aristotelian, Stoic, Christian, and Oriental alike, I shall henceforth refer to for brevity simply as the Tao. Some of the accounts I have quoted will seem perhaps to many of you very quaint or even magical, but what is common to them all is something we cannot neglect. It's the doctrine of objective value, the belief that certain attitudes are true and others false, to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of things we are. The idea is that besides the materialists, end quote, the idea is that besides materialists, all the other world systems have something akin to this Tao that is an objective way of measuring the world. And a good education prepares the students not just with beliefs and actions, but with the proper emotional training to recognize the Tao and have the correct aesthetic and emotional responses in their lives. So the materialistically educated person is called a man without a chest. And the emotionally trained person is called a man with a chest. So the purpose of education is to give you this heart. And where I'm from in Phoenix, we have a a well-known charter school, classical charter school education system called Great Hearts. And it's essentially a system based on the abolition of man book, how to give students a great heart. And he thinks this will be what cures education for the 20th century. Without the aid, he says, of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. The intellect is powerless against the animal organism. The mind won't work. So what does that have to do with our topic? While the men without chests don't recognize beauty, it doesn't factor into a utilitarian reasoning or pragmatism. It isn't part of logical positivism. And you can think of the villains in Lewis's fiction. Maybe some of them are moral monsters. I don't know if they're physical monsters. He named some, some monsters. Can I add one to your list? Mm-hmm. Crookback Richard. He's the best villain. I almost thought I should give my talk as Crookback. And uh, usually Sauron, all these guys are based on Richard III. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, The factor, yeah, utilitarian reasoning, pragmatism. That's what is meant by intellect. All right, so we're going to come back to that with Roger Scruton in a minute here. So Lois's use of the Tao is is an excellent example of the problem. The world systems he lists don't do what he says they do. They don't all agree there's an objective world by which right and wrong can be judged. And Taoism is a good example. It's a monistic religion that says all is one. And its most famous symbol is the yin-yang 
in which they both good and evil swirl into each other and both of them have one of the other in it. And so you'll get Anakin as a Taoist saying, from my perspective, you're wrong. It's all one. So Taoism doesn't do what Lewis thinks it doesn't, and a number of the other ones don't either. Stoicism is also a monistic religion that says all is one. So we can go on with more examples, but given his PPA, Platonic Perspective of Art, it makes sense that these matters of belief and reason are not what is important to Lewis. He doesn't think that arguments will help us in actions. So next, Roger Scruton. What is beauty? How would we train a student to have the proper response to an object of beauty if we don't know what beauty is? Or if we are uh, to just to trust the experts, isn't that just what to conceive that beauty is in the eye of the beholder? And experts have sharply disagreed with each other on how to define beauty. So Scruton can help us with this definition, with the definition of art and beauty. Much of what is called classical art is just platonic art in the sense that it's meant to help us depart from this world and point us to transcendental forms. The idealized human body and scenes that draw our attention away from this world are examples. So we still need to get to an exact definition of art, and Scruton considers a few, such that it has to do with order, balance, or everything having a place in the system. But each of these comes short of a full definition and leaves us with something like, you'll know it when you see it. But that brings us back to the problem, is beauty in the eye of the beholder. Right? So in the Lewis program, the people who train the people to have these hearts are the ones who determine what counts as beauty for the next generation of students, and what if they're wrong? So Scruton says, there is an appealing idea about beauty which goes back to Plato and Plotinus, and which became incorporated by various routes into Christian theological thinking. According to this idea, beauty is an ultimate value something that we pursue for its own sake, and for the purpose of which no further reason need be given. But should therefore, beauty should therefore be compared to truth and goodness, one member of a trio of ultimate values be, which justify our rational inclinations. Why believe P? Because it's true. Why want A? Because it's good. Why look at Y? Because it's beautiful. In some way, philosophers have argued those answers uh, are insufficient. Each brings, a state of, brings to a state of mind into an uh, ambit of reason by connecting it to something that is in our nature as rational beings to pursue. Someone who asks why believe what is true or why want what is good has failed to understand the nature of reasoning. He doesn't see that if we are to justify our beliefs and desires at all, then our reasons must be anchored in the true and the good. So we begin to see a departure between, a division between Scrooge and Lewis, where Lewis says the intellect really has nothing to do with it without the heart, and he defines reason as utilitarianism, reasoning in terms of means ends. Scrooge here has given us a broader definition of reason, which is the pursuit of meaning. And that's what unites truth, beauty, and goodness, is the pursuit of meaning. So perhaps the more critical part of Platonic definition is that of transcendence. Scruton cites Aquinas as having this same view that he's proposing, and even saying that truth, beauty, and goodness are the same thing due to his understanding of divine simplicity. The forms and being in itself can be beautiful while the world of change is only a shadow. We see the same teaching in Lewis. It's the idea of transcendence that Lewis believes unites the world systems that he names. However, given that some of those are monist, that they deny there is anything transcendental at all, is problematic. This cannot be the basis for a definition of beauty without begging the question. 
We can take from the Scruton quote above that these three categories, truth, beauty, and goodness, are ends in themselves. That means they're not defined in relation to some further end that they help achieve. They're desired for their own sake. And we can appreciate this because we're rational beings. But notice that this narrows what is meant by rational. It's, it's not the means, ends, reasoning, or practical rationality that Lewis was aiming at. This is, a, this is a definition where reason is the laws of thought by which we understand anything, that beauty is beauty and truth is truth, goodness is goodness. We see this definition of religion continue in Scruton's use of Kant. We begin from certain platitudes, this is Scruton, about beauty, and we move towards a theory, that of Kant, which is far from platitudinous and indeed inherently controversial with its attempt to define aesthetic judgment and give it a central role in the life of a rational being. I don't say that Kant's theory is right, but it provides an interesting starting point to a subject that remains as controversial today as it was when Kant wrote his third critique. And one thing is surely right in Kant's argument, which is that the experience of beauty, like the experience in which it issues, is the prerogative of rational beings. Only creatures like us with language, self-consciousness, practical reason and moral judgment can look on the world in this alert and disinterested way so as to seize on the presented object and take pleasure in it. So Scruton and Kant are using reason in this, in this way that's different from Lewis and arguing in contrast to Lewis that it is certainly the mind and reason which makes sense of beauty and allows us to understand what truly is beauty. We're rational. When we're rational, in this sense, we're being disinterested and can make judgments without acting merely on self-interest. So although uh, the villains in Lewis's novels might be these kind of scientific, clinical people that just want to formulate society based on their rationalism, they're actually failing to use reason in this broader sense. They're uh, acting out of a kind of self-interest and not according to the laws of thought. They're irrational. And I wonder if that's some good connection with, also with monsters. Now, this is platonic still in this sense. It still relies on the idea that this world of change is the source, the, the fact that it's changing and limited in the material world is why there's evil and suffering. And our highest good waits for us in some other world, uh, a non-physical world, where we have some kind of apprehension of the forms. And so even in Scruton, we still see that emphasis Beauty is directing us away from a world of suffering and to an idealized realm, not of this world. So he says, art, as I have known it, stands on the threshold of the transcendental. It points beyond this world of accidental and disconnected things to another realm in which human life is endowed with an emotional logic that makes suffering noble and love worthwhile. So that's the PPA, the platonic view of art. It's pointing us to something beyond this world, and this world is inherently broken or ugly because it's limited. Matter is always limited. You can always measure matter. And the modern artist, who wishes to depart from classical art and its conceptions of beauty, focuses only on this world and the disorder in this world, and hence the ugliness of much of modern art, or it just becomes a kind of activism, which is not really art. Politicization of a piece of art, put a, put a uh, political poster in a frame and call it art. This is activism. So for Lewis and Scruton, they're relying on this 
Platonic theory, which comes out of what I'll call Greek dualism, which I just described. There's two worlds. One's material, one's spiritual. World of matter, world of the forms. The world of matter is inherently uh, evil, cause of limitation and suffering, want, and you're on a journey of the soul to get to this next spiritual realm. And all the religions are the same in that they all tell you the magic words to say. So when you die, you go on to the higher spiritual realm. They di disagree about the magical words, but it's the same kind of religious framework. That's the Platon or the Greek dualistic view of religion. So are we caught between this classical and this reductionist theories of beauty? Is the PPA, the Platonic perspective of art, the best definition? Well, I'm going to argue that it's a false dichotomy between the reductionists and the classical uh, view. And I'm going to do, in order to illustrate that, I'm going to rely on Keats and King David. Keats represents the Platonists, and King David represents what, God. <laughs> He's on God's side. Like in that argument, that's who you want to be on, on the side, right? Now we find Keats doing what poets do. He's sitting around reflecting about the meaning of a Grecian urn. And that takes him back to ancient Greece. He reflects on Grecian landscapes, but more pointedly on Grecian religion. He sees a priest leading a sacrifice to the altar. He thinks of the gods and the mortals. And all this really makes him happy, like puts him in this idealized place. And, and that's the Platonic view. That history is gone. The world is a world of change, not permanence. And it makes him long for that world of permanence. And so in the, in the PPE, the, the Platonic perspective of education, you just plop beauty down in front of the student, and they want it. The highest perception is this kind of intuitive and not inferential. They just see the forms in Platonism. In fact, according to Plato, we've already seen the forms. You don't see the forms now, because this is the world of change, but you do know about them. So can you figure out where in Plato thought you saw them? You do know about them, but you don't know about them from now from your past life. Your soul had no beginning in Platonism. It, has, it reincarnates, it has no end. But more importantly, it's uncreated. It saw the forms in previous lives. That's Platonism. So the world of decay, this world has no meaning, and any suffering that happens here is at best a kind of training for whatever your soul does in the next life. Now I think King David gave us an alternative. And one might think, well, isn't that just what Lewis was expressing as a Christian? Well, no, because I think Lewis on this point is a Platonist and more influenced by the Greeks. When one reads Lewis, it's something of a work for the reader to distinguish what is Christian and what is Plato. What David does is shows us this, the beauty of holiness. Where the Greek categories were truth, beauty, and goodness, David's categories are knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. The latter, I think, are a fuller description of the human condition. We want knowledge or understanding, not merely many true propositions, truth. We want holiness, not merely the beautiful, and we want righteousness, not otherworldly virtue. These are expressed in normative terms as humans ought to seek, understand, and do what is right. So in Psalm 27, David says, one thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the, ho in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And then I remain confident in this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is no otherworldly longing. David's desire is not the otherworldly beatific vision. He looks to see the face of God in the sense of understanding God directly. 
and not just through signs and symbols, to understand the glory of God in this life. And he tells us about this in places like Psalm 19, 104, 145. The works of God display the glory of God. Very different than the Platonic view, which says all of this doesn't matter. He's getting it from the Egyptians. All of this is death and decay, and our soul's on a journey to the next world. Let's not what the psalmist lets us get away with. This world is filled with the glory of God. All of the things that you would think of as death and decay are also under the providential hand of God and are working for redemptive purposes, beginning in Genesis 3. It's interesting, the Egyptians and the Greeks thought suffering was always there. It wasn't always there. Beginning in Genesis 3 and culminating all the way down at the end of history, once sin is removed, death is removed. So it's not simply enough to speak of the transcendental, as if art is just the transcendental. We need to get to the beauty of holiness which is seen in God. Think of the, the temple that Keats saw with the pagan sacrifice the gods and mortals, and contrast that with what's taught at the temple in Jerusalem. We are taught about vicarious atonement, about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, about the difference between clean and unclean, and the purpose of suffering in life as a call by God to make us repent. Those aren't things that were taught by the Greeks at their temples. So conclusion, what is beauty? The various definitions that Scruton considered, he himself said they all seem lacking. That's because I think they lacked the beauty of holiness. The holiness of God is beautiful. It's sublime. His is the perfect commitment to all that is good, the perfect rule in wisdom over all the details, the perfection of justice in always upholding the day you eat, you'll surely die, the perfection of love in redeeming the lost. So beauty is unity. It is everything having a place, and it is the perfect, but all these find their grounding in the reality of God who creates and rules all things to the end of the revelation of his glory. So David calls this the beauty of holiness. Holiness is the center of any definition of beauty. Whatever other parts of the definition we can take from Scruton's analysis, it is holiness that unites them into one coherent whole and is holiness that one desires. The turn away from beauty and modernity is partly due to the absence of holiness in the world. But if all of God's works display his glory, how can we account for evil and the apparent lack of holiness? It's this that drives the Greek dualistic view to say that matter, the material world, is a source of evil. But David gives us the answer to this problem throughout the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 27, we find David facing enemies and hardships. And even these, he says, are sent for redemptive purposes by the Lord. The enemies of God who turn to wickedness still display the glory of God in this life to believers. So contrast that with, with Lewis's idea that the mind doesn't help us change our actions with David here, affirming what Paul says as well, you're sanctified by the truth. As you come to understand the truth, you see the glory of God in the world, even when you're encountering evil. So the preparation needed in an education is the preparation to see the holiness of God. The veil over the face of Moses or the veil of the temple indicates this. You may not be ready to see the holiness of God. You may need a veil. The reality of sin in each person means not only do they not want to see God's holiness, but they're not prepared to do so. Just as the Platonic perspective of education speaks to the need to prepare a student for art appreciation, so too the, uh, the psalmist's, also PPE, psalmist uh, perspective of education has a type of preparation. It's the type of preparation that David or Asaph or Job undergo. It's the preparation that the believer would have learned at the temple or by observing the law. One approaches God in his holiness and only with a sacrifice for sin. 
the philosopher and the artist both pursue meaning. It is this search for meaning that unites them in their different methods. Both mere this-worldliness that Lewis is critiquing and also Greek dualistic otherworldliness are failed solutions that don't provide meaning. If Lewis was right in his criticisms of the materialist, he still needs to go beyond it to the beauty of holiness. And David in the Psalms points us to the truth about God's holiness. Thank you.